Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. When I think about 27 years of God's faithfulness to this church, uh, many things come to mind. I think about the prayer meetings that happened for many months leading up to the launch of the church. I think about the very first public service we had on February 11th, 1996, which was in our minds supposed to happen on February 4th, 1996, but we got iced out. 50,000 people were without power, and so there was no services that day. I think about meeting what, right where you're sitting today, this was just kind of farmland that a family owned a lot of it. And I, I think about the meeting. I can still see the meeting with um, a man who remained anonymous, who was not a part of Harvest. And we were talking about looking for 15 or 20 acres. And we talked about a, a, a site down the street that was about 50 acres. And we were going to see if he would put an investment group together and buy part of it and let us buy part of it. And he said, um, well, yeah, I could consider that. What else have you looked at? And we told him about this site, which was 26 acres. And he said, I'll buy that for the church. <laughs> um, I think about the second public worship service in this facility where a child uh, pulled one of the fire alarms and we were so new we didn't even know how to turn it off so for 10 or 15 minutes it went crazy mostly I think about people people that God has touched people that God has used and just really thankful uh, for them there I want to point out just a, a handful of them. There's so many, so many pictures that that we could put up. But people who, who have been baptized, who've made their public expression of faith in Christ. This was 2018. A- along the way, and you can see that happened here. Our in recent years, our baptisms have happened here. But along the way. We baptized in a lot of different places. A lot of churches were very gracious to us to let us use their baptistry. Um, uh, the church next door, Christ Community Church. Uh, we baptized at the YMCA, at Nomad. Even in um, Lake Norman, we had one baptism in Lake Norman. Anybody remember that? Was anybody here for that baptism? There were several people being baptized. Tom and Sherry Muma, who were Harvest members, and then transitioned into Harvest Missionaries, and we still support them today in the nation of Chad. They had this, they lived on the lake, and so in one of those inlets at Lake Norman, they said, oh yeah, you can come baptize here. And so we went and baptized, and what I remember the most about it is it was kind of squishy in that lake. And I was sinking, I mean literally sinking. And I'm not talking about that old hymn, I was sinking deep in sin. I mean, I was, and I've, I got to the point after every two or three people, I had to like move a little bit. So I was afraid I was never going to come out of that lake. Um, one of the places we baptized was Joe and Jan Mott, uh, 
who now live in the mountains, uh, lived on a farm and they had a pool in their backyard. And this is a baptism from 2004. That's Leanne Wilson, who's on the back row right there. She uh, reminded me this morning that she came to, to harvest in February of 2004. And in May, she trusted Christ. And then that summer, she was baptized. Another person baptized that day was Cy Hill. Um, her husband and daughters had been saved and baptized about a year before, and she just kept coming to church with them from her Buddhist background, and uh, God touched her heart, and uh, they're saved. And and uh, she and Don uh, grew through community group, through Bible study, through serving here with internationals, through going on mission trips like to Honduras there, and then a few years ago, we were able to commission them, and they are uh, in Thailand today planting a church, and we praise God uh, for them. Speaking of Honduras, I, we have a trip going there soon, but that's, that's an earlier trip to Honduras, and that's uh, Noel Gomez, our, our missionary there, whom our team will partner with uh, as they go. We've been to many, many other places, one of which was Papua New Guinea. Uh, to help some of our Bible translators there and some of their construction. There's been service all over the world. There's service locally like Jennifer, then Graham, now Jolly, uh, serving at the Pregnancy Care Center. Um, and then uh, a lot of local ministry with uh, some of our Hispanic friends through ESL and their children and, and people serving on the grounds, right? and doing a lot of work on the grounds here. Uh, People praying together is such uh, an an incredible part of this church. And not everything is really serious that we do here. This is an early youth camp. Uh, So I don't know if they'll do this this summer or not. Corey is shaking his head no. So as we gather to celebrate today, what does God want to say to us? What would he impress us with? To to help us find that out, I want to invite your attention to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. So you have a physical Bible, a phone, or if you just want to see the verses on the screen, Matthew chapter 16 Verses 13 to 19, Um, Janet alluded to it in her story. We are teaching and preaching through the book of Hebrews, Lord willing. Next Sunday, we'll we'll return uh, and pick up in chapter 3 of Hebrews. Today, Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus came uh, to the region of, of Caesarea Philippi, um, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, 
You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Here's God's word for us this morning. The church is centered on Christ and his mission. It's not a fancy word. It's not a complicated word. But this is the word of God. The church, and I mean the church, and we'll talk about that. Harvest is an expression, and this was alluded to earlier. Harvest is one local expression of the church. The church consists of all true believers in Jesus Christ. The church is centered on Christ and his mission. And as we set the stage for what's happening in Matthew chapter 16, the disciples do not yet fully understand Jesus or his mission. And so when he comes to this spot, he takes them into a journey or on a journey into pagan territory to teach them, and by extension to teach us, about himself and the church. And as we learn about the church as a whole, the church, then of course we will want to say, how can we as a local expression of the church, how can we learn from that and apply that? So there are some key elements, key truths that Jesus taught about the church in Matthew chapter 16. And I want to give them to you this morning. And the first one is this, the foundation of the church is the identity of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, whom do the people say the son of man is? Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, in Matthew 16, Jesus and his disciples are moving north um, of Galilee into an area that was primarily Gentile, Caesarea Philippi. It was an important Greco-Roman city in that time. Herod Philip rebuilt it and renamed it in honor of Herod and himself. <laughs> uh, I mean, in, in honor of the, 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 the uh, emperor Caesar uh, and himself. So it's uh, Caesarea Philippi is the name of this city. And the interesting thing is that in that city... It was known to be a place of pagan worship. There was a, a pagan, a famous pagan shrine to the god Pan. Here in this area that had been a stronghold of pagan worship, Jesus wants to ask his disciples about his own identity. Jesus wants to clarify for them who he really is. And so he asks, 
What had the people heard? And, and some said John the Baptist. Well, Herod Antipas had uh, believed that Jesus was John the Baptist who had come back to life. It was seemingly a popular rumor. And the other responses help us understand what the Jewish expectations of that time were about the Messiah. Some people uh, say Elijah they pointed to to a prophet. And in Malachi chapter 3 and 4, indeed, uh, Elijah was prophesied to be the forerunner of the Messiah. So some people thought maybe that was him. And still others thought maybe one of the prophets, and they even named Jeremiah. We don't know specifically why Jeremiah, maybe because he was the weeping prophet and identified with Jesus in that way. But Jesus looks at them and says, well, what about you? What about you guys? This is what people are saying out here, but but you tell me what you think. (laughs) Who do you say that I am? Now, Peter speaks up. But this is not just Peter's confession alone. Peter is the leader of the group and will become the leader of the group over time. And we will see it in the formation of the church. We can't prove it, but it is almost a a certain assumption that as these disciples were with Jesus and watching him as he went through his life and everything, they had this discussion. Well, who who do you think he really is? (laughs) Right? So they had no doubt talked about it among themselves. And Peter speaks up and says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Some of your translations will read, you are the Christ. And that would be a legitimate translation. Christ is a title. It's not Jesus' actual name. His name was Jesus. His title was Christ And that owes its origin to the Hebrew term that means anointed, used 39 times in the Old Testament of prophets and priests and kings that were anointed for their task. By the time you get to the first century when this was written, uh, Messiah or Christ referred to a kingly figure that was going to rule and reign and defeat Israel's enemies like David had done. And Peter adds to Messiah, the son of the living God. You're the son of the living God. And it it is interesting that in this area that's known for pagan worship, they're making this great proclamation. You are the son of the living God. These, all these false gods out here are not living. But there is a God who is alive and you are his son. One of the main reasons why we're taking about nine months to work through the book of Hebrews is because it has such an incredible focus, an incredible explanation about who Jesus is and what he has done and is doing. And we are going to drive home that over and over and over again because our culture needs it desperately. Our culture is, has so abandoned almost any notion of truth, and they need this truth about who Jesus is. He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so Jesus turns in verse 17 and replies, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Peter did not come to this on his own. God revealed that to him. And then he says, and I tell you that you are Peter. 
And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus called Peter by the name he had given him when Simon was first called. If you read it, you can read it. We won't turn there. John chapter 1, verse 42. Uh, Cephas. Translated from an Aramaic word, Kephas, right? The Greek name Peter or Petros is the equivalent of that Aramaic word. It just means rock. (laughs) You are rock. That's what that name Peter means. And we're going to learn as the passage develops that Jesus is the builder and Jesus is the cornerstone. But Peter is the rock and does have a foundational role in the church, in the establishment of the church. Not the role that some people believe, but we'll clarify that as well. And before elaborating on the church, just note that everything starts with Jesus. Everything centers on Christ. Everything in the foundation of the church is about his identity. You can have everything else. You can have fellowship. You can have community. You can have mission. You can have any and everything you want. But if you don't have who Jesus is, you don't have anything. It all starts there. The second truth that we learn about the church here is that the one who builds the church is Jesus and Jesus alone. Verse 18, and I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Will you read those five words out loud with me? I'm going to read from the beginning of the verse. When we get to the five underlined words, will you read them out loud with me? I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. That word for build actually was used for physically building things, physically constructing things. Like in Matthew seven twenty four, remember the story about the wise man and the foolish man? The wise man built his house on the rock. Foolish man built his house on the sand. That's, that's the same word. Mark chapter 12, verse 1, the man who built a tower. Or the foolish man in Luke 12 who had so much money and rather than using it for others, he just wanted to store more up. So he tore down his barns and he built more barns. So it's use of physically building things, but it can also be used figuratively of, of establishing something. And that's what Jesus says. I am going to build my church I'm going to build my church. Jesus is the only builder of the church. The pastor is not the builder of the church. The staff is not the builder of the church. The elders are not the builder of the church. The congregation, though serving, is not the builder of the church. The only builder of the church is Jesus. I will build my church. And this brings us both comfort and challenge. (laughs) It brings great comfort because this is God's work. This isn't our work. He's allowed us to participate with him. This is his work. The church is his work. He's building it. And our job is not to build it. We talk like that at times. 
But our job is not to build it. Our job is to be faithful, to know him, to honor him, and leave the results to him. He's the only one who can build. He's the only one who can change lives. He's the only one who can save people. So it's a comfort. And it's a challenge in the sense of we always want to ask, are we following his ways? Are we building at a human level, building the way he would build it? Third truth is we want to think about, is the church going to fail or succeed? (laughs) What's the prospect? The prospect for the success of the church is 100% guaranteed. (laughs) 100% guaranteed. Notice what he said. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, Cities in those days had gates that guarded them. So the image of a gate is is security, right? It's power and security. Hades was the realm of the dead. So the idea here is that death is an incredible enemy. But even the power of death is not ever going to be able to stop Christ church. So... People will come and go, and there will be people who are very instrumental in the ministry of the church who who will die, and they'll be gone. That's not going to stop the church, because the church isn't built on them. The church is built on Christ. And obviously, there's also a link, I think, conceptually at least, and probably biblically, about death being Satan, because Satan has the power of death. We learned that last week in Hebrews that through Jesus' own death and burial and resurrection, he had defeated the one who had the power of death, that is Satan. And it's just not going to overcome it. Death overcomes everyone. Everyone dies. Death always wins. Except in one occasion. <laughs> Death is not going to defeat the church because death couldn't defeat the founder of the church. Now, let's think about how much guarantee we have of success in human endeavors. Let's think, for instance, let's think about sports for a minute. NCAA men's basketball championships. These are the, these are the college programs that have the most championships of all time, UCLA leads the pack with 11, then Kentucky, I'm sad to say, with eight. Um, North Carolina is six. And notice way below North Carolina is Duke with five, below, underneath, and so forth. Now, people go, wow, UCLA, 11, ch-. I mean, that's, that's dominance, that's dynasty, that... It is, except this, when you think about it this way, do do you know when the NCAA men's basketball tournament started? 1939. That means there have been 83 champions. 83 champions. And the one team that's won more than anybody else, is they've won 11. That's 11 out of 83. That's 13% of the time. So if that's, if that's your dominant team, they can win 13, you have a 13% chance of winning. Any baseball followers in here? Luis Ariz, 
leading batter right now in major leagues, bats 388. Second baseman for the Miami Marlins, right? 388. That's pretty strong, right? That means the very best, the very best pro only gets hits four out of ten times. The very best one. And people, oh, wow, he's so awesome. Four out of ten. Sounds like a weatherman, right? How many of their predictions are right? I wonder what their batting percentage is. The weather person, do they, would that be 388? Uh, I don't know. How about golf? The greatest golfer of all time, I, probably is Jack Nicklaus, right? He won 18 major championships. 18 of them. There are four tournaments a year that are considered majors. There's one happening this, this weekend, the PGA. Jack won 18 of them. Which is awesome, but do you know how many he competed in? 164. That's 11%. So in contrast, I put those up just for some perspective about how we tend to think about greatness and certainty and all of that. And I want us to point us back to the fact that Jesus said the gates of Hades are not going to prevail. And we know that because we saw him rise from the dead, or hundreds of people saw him afterwards, and we have eyewitness testimony to it. The gates of Hades will not prevail. Finally, the mission of the church is to proclaim the reality of God's kingdom. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Contrary to what the official dogma of the Catholic Church says, Peter was not the first pope. That's not what it means when he was given the king keys to heaven. Michael Wilkins says, Peter is individually singled out for his act of leadership in making the confession, yet his leadership role is from within the circle of the disciples. What does it mean for somebody, for God to give Peter the keys to the kingdom? Think about what a key does. A key unlocks a door. And the door of the gospel was locked to people, right? It had to be unlocked. And when did it get unlocked? In Acts chapter 2, the very first Christian sermon ever, the first sermon that proclaimed the message that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, and could save people if they would repent and put their faith in Christ, was Acts chapter 2. And who did God use to preach that sermon? Peter. He unlocked the kingdom. He had the keys to the kingdom. And yet, Jesus builds his church through the foundation we learn in Ephesians of the apostles and prophets, according to Ephesians 2.20. Peter is a leader among the apostles, but once he completed that role, he passed off the scene. If you read Acts, the first 12 chapters, Peter's the leading character. And then after that, Peter just disappears and Paul becomes the leading character. Peter does have some primacy, but there's no succession of a papacy. Peter sinned. Peter was rebuked by Paul, in fact, if you'll remember that account. But in many ways, Peter represents all believers in Christ. Because these very words that Jesus used to Peter saying, I'm, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. 
in Matthew chapter 18, in the context of church discipline, Jesus says to the disciples, to the church, not just to one, he says to them, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So that was not just something for Peter or the apostles alone. We too are called to share the message of the gospel. And the gospel relates to the kingdom of God. It's not the same thing as the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God is God's rule. And the opportunity for God to rule someone's life, for his presence to be there and to change them and save them and for them to live not based on their own life and their own rule, but so in a way that is consistent with God's character and under his rule, that's the great message that we have to give to people. All of us, not just apostles, not just pastors or missionaries, but every Christian and every church. So let me give you a couple implications today from this passage as as we think about the church as a whole and how harvest might fit in with it. The first implication is to renew our commitment to the truth about Christ. We cannot waver one second on who Jesus is on what Jesus said about himself or what Jesus said about anything else. He didn't just say, I'm, you know, I'm going to give you some truth along with all these other religions. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we want to renew that commitment. And maybe, maybe you're hearing this message and Jesus has just kind of been a good religious figure to you, but he's so much more than that. He is the son of God. And he is the only way to be saved and the only way to go to heaven. And he died for you. Today, his message is to open your heart and life to him and repent. That means change your mind about your sin and turn to him for your salvation. The second implication is this. Make sure that we our building plans match his. This is his church. The church is his. It's all about him. The foundation is him. He is the one that is building it. So are we trying to build harvest the way he wants his church to be built? Let's hear what he said about some things. In Matthew chapter 4, in, when Jesus was being tempted... Near the beginning of his ministry, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kings of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Worship was incredibly important. And that's one of the pillars, one of the foundational elements of this church. One of the, it's a key part of our vision Our philosophy of ministry is that we will worship God. Not just that we will have a portion of a service that we will call the worship. Yes, we will worship in services. That means it's not about who's on stage or what they're playing or what they're singing. It's about all of us pouring our hearts out to God in worship in a way that we worship him all week long, 24-7. That's important. 
And then disciple-making is an incredible pillar. Jesus' last words on earth before he ascended, when he gathered the disciples, he said, All authority on, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. Just go make disciples. <laughs> Go present the gospel to them. Teach them everything. Baptize them and then teach them everything I've taught you. And you teach them to do the same. And it just becomes a repeated process, disciple-making. That's one of our pillars here. Community was very important to Jesus, very important to us. He said to his followers in John 15, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Scripture is incredibly important as he prayed in that great high priestly prayer of John 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. We have to be a church built on Scripture. We, You heard it. I, I, I didn't tell people what to say. I told them to glorify God for how they had seen God work. And I'm thankful that Scripture was pointed to the word, our commitment to the word was pointed to because this is this is where truth comes from, not from our minds. We have to preach the word. We have to study the word. We have to know the word. We have to meditate the word. We have to have families that study it together and live it together and men that study it and women and groups that study it and personally. And in prayer is so important to Jesus. Mark chapter 11 on reaching Jerusalem. This is coming in near the end of his earthly life. He entered the temple courts, began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Let's keep growing as a house of prayer. And let's be a church of grace. The very description of Jesus in John 1. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. Full of grace and truth. So what are these six pillars supporting? They're supporting our one vision, which is to make disciples who make disciples for God's glory. The church is centered on Christ and his mission. I want to close by showing you something that is personal to me, but it's it's not just personal, it's related to the church. Um, it's not just uh, it's not just you know cute because it's from a grandchild. It, it is cute because it's from a grandchild. But but it's not just that. So Tish was able this week uh, to spend some time with uh, Justin, Natalie, and 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 the four grandkids there. And Isla's the oldest one. She's seven years old. And apparently along the way they were talking about the church anniversary. You know, I, I was here. They were in Texas. And so Isla decided she wanted to write a card to me 
for the church anniversary. <laughs> and, I mean, this was all her initiative, right? You didn't, you didn't say, hey, can you, no, there's all her initiative. And, and again, I'm sharing it. Yeah, yeah, I'm a grandfather. I admit it, you know, uh, but, but I, I try to be hesitant about that. But there's, she didn't know I was preaching on Matthew 16, but after you read the card, you will think, I mean, you know, normally we talk on Saturday night. She and I talk about what I'm preaching the next day. And I, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but the truth that's in this card is it's just, and you're not going to be able to read it. Okay. Uh, it, it's handwritten. I mean, this, this is a homemade card. Um, and, and that's just a picture of the inside of it. But it, it, it's pretty awesome. Some of the stuff that is, see, it says Harvest Church. She's drawn Harvest Church there. Uh, and see up on the top, the three crosses. Can, I don't know. Can you see the three crosses? And the empty tomb? <laughs> Jesus, I guess that's Jesus coming out of the tomb. And you got Psalm 1 over here, or no, Psalm 19, right? The, the heavens declare the glory of God. <laughs> Proclaims his handiwork. He's got that no speech, their words. And then over here, you've got uh, uh, some words of a hymn. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin, I resign. And you've got this Bible verse. For God so loved the world, uh, he sent his only son. And then it continues back up at the top. Whoever would not perish but have eternal life. <laughs> That's one side of it. It says Harvest Church. Now, they're involved in a ministry in Texas, in inner city Houston, that's planting a church among refugees, and it's called Refuge Church. And this one's got Refuge Church written on it. See, Refuge Church there, and it's strong. See, R-E-F-U-G-E, church. <laughs> Jesus came to save sinners like you and me, dying on the cross to set us free. Song, Steve Green. And then she wrote a poem. She, she wrote this poem. Why, why do we go to church? It's not any old job. We go to church to study about the living God. Jesus died and he's alive and that is very true. We should trust him every day and serve him through and through. Now can you join me in one last praise to him and say hallelujah and learn more about him? <laughs> And I love this last little part right here, her prayer. Dear God, thank you for all the things you have made. For family, friends, and homes to live in. Please give homes to those who don't have homes. Remember, they work with refugees. Thank you for clothes, for food, and water, and especially for the church. Especially for the church. And I want to say that today, too. Thank you, Jesus, for the church. Let's bow our heads, please. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. 
This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.